Book Ten, Chapter Thirteen of Camilla. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Crandall. Camilla, or A Picture of Youth by Fanny Burney. Book Ten, Chapter Thirteen. Questions and Answers. Mr. Tyrold did not return till the next day from Belfont, where, through the account he gave from his daughter, the violent exit of the miserable Bellamy was brought in accidental death. Various circumstances had now acquainted him with the history of that wretched man, who was the younger son of the master of a great gaming-house. In his first youth he had been utterly neglected, and left to run wild whither he chose, but, his father afterwards becoming very rich, had bestowed upon him as good an education as the late period at which it was begun could allow. He was intended for a lucrative business, but he had no application, and could retain no post. He went into the army, but he had no courage, and was speedily cashiered. Inheriting a passion for the means by which the parental fortune had been raised, he devoted himself next to its pursuit, and won very largely. But, as extravagance and good luck by long custom go hand in hand, he spent as fast as he acquired, and upon a tide of fortune in his disfavor, was tempted to reverse the chances by unfair play, was found out, and as ignominiously chased from the field of hazard as from that of patriotism. His father was no more. His eldest brother would not assist him. He sold, therefore, his house, and all he possessed but his wardrobe, and, relying upon a very uncommonly handsome face and person, determined to seek a fairer lot, by eloping, if possible, with some heiress. He thought it, however, prudent not only to retire from London, but to make a little change in his name, which from Nicholas Gwig he refined into Alfonso Bellamy. He began his career by a tour into Wales, where he insinuated himself into the acquaintance of Mrs. Ecton, just after she had married Miss Helman to Mr. Burlington. And, though this was not an intercourse that could travel to Gretna Green, the beauty and romantic turn of the bride of so disproportioned a marriage opened to his unprincipled mind a scheme yet more flagitious. Fortunately, however, for his fair destined prey, soon after the connection was formed, she left Wales, and the search of new adventures carried him, by various chances, into Hampshire. But he had established with her a correspondence, and when he had caught, or rather forced, an heiress into legal snares, the discovery of who and what he was became less important, and he ventured again to town, and renewed his heinous plan, as well as his inveterate early habits, till surprised by some unpleasant recollectors, debts of honour, which he had found it convenient to elude upon leaving the capital, were claimed, and he found it impossible to appear without satisfying such demands. Thence his cruel and inordinate persecution of his unhappy wife for money, and thence, ultimately, the brief vengeance which had reverberated upon his own head. Camilla, whose danger was the result of self-neglect, as her sufferings had all flowed from mental anguish, was already able to go down to the study upon the arrival of Mr. Tyrold, where she received with grateful rapture the tender blessings which welcomed her to the paternal arms, to her home, to peace, to safety, and primeval joy. Mr. Tyrold, sparing to her yet weak nerves any immediate explanations upon the past, called upon his wife to aid him to communicate in the quietest manner what had been done at Belfont to Eugenia, charging Camilla to take no part in a scene inevitably shocking. Once more, in the appropriate apartment of her father, 
where all her earliest scenes of gayest felicity had passed, but which of late she had only approached with terror, only entered to weep, she experienced a delight almost awful in renovation of her pristine confidence and fearless ease. She took from her pocket, where alone she could ever bear to keep it, her loved locket, delighting to attribute to it this restoration to domestic enjoyment, though feeling at the same time a renewal of suspense from the return of its donor, and from the affecting interview into which she had been surprised, that broke in upon even her filial happiness with bitter tyrannical regret. Yet she passed to her bosom the cherished symbol of first regard, and was holding it to her lips when Mrs. Tyrold unexpectedly re-entered the room. In extreme confusion, she shut it into its chagrin case, and was going to restore it to her pocket, but enfolding it with her daughter's hand between each of her own, Mrs. Tyrold said, "'Shall I ever, my dear girl, learn the history of this locket?' "'Oh, yes, my dearest mother,' said the blushing Camilla, "'of that, and of every, and of all things. You have only, you have merely—' "'If it distresses you, my dear child, we will leave it to another day,' said Mrs. Tyrold, whose eyes Camilla saw, as she now raised her own, were swimming in tears. "'My mother, my dearest mother,' cried she, with the tenderest alarm, "'has anything new happened? Is Eugenia greatly affected?' "'She is all, every way, and in every respect,' said Mrs. Tyrold, "'whatever the fondest, or even the proudest mother could wish. "'But I do not at this instant think most of her. "'I am not without some fears for my Camilla's strength, "'in the immediate demand that may be made upon her fortitude. "'Tell me, my child, with that sincerity "'which so long has been mutually endearing between us, "'tell me if you think you can see her again, "'and as usual, without any risk to your health, one long admitted and welcomed as part of the family. She started, changed color, looked up, cast her eyes on the floor, but soon seeing Mrs. Tyrold hold and handkerchief bathed in tears to her face, lost all dread and even all consciousness in tender gratitude, and throwing her arms round her neck, Oh, my mother, she cried, you who weep not for yourself, scarcely even in the most poignant sorrow, can you weep for me? I will see, or I will avoid whoever you please. I shall want no fortitude, I shall fear nothing, no one, not even myself, now again under your protection. I will scarcely even think, my beloved mother, but by your guidance. Compose yourself, then, my dearest girl, and if you believe you are equal to behaving with firmness, I will not refuse his request of readmission. His request, repeated Camilla, with involuntary quickness, but finding Mrs. Tyrold did not notice it, gently adding, that person that, I believe, you mean, has done nothing, my dear mother, to merit expulsion? I am happy to hear you say so. I have been fearfully, I must own, and even piercingly displeased with him. Ah, my dear mother, how kind was the partiality that turned your displeasure so wrong away, that made you, even you, my dear mother, listen to your fondness rather than to your justice. She trembled at the temerity of this vindication the moment it had escaped her, and, looking another way, spoke again of Eugenia, but Mrs. Tyrold, now taking both her hands, and seeking, though vainly, to meet her eyes, said, My dearest child, I grow painfully anxious to end a thousand doubts, to speak and to hear with no further ambiguity, nor reserve. If Edgar— Camilla again changed color, and strove to withdraw her hands. Take courage, my dear love, and let one final explanation relieve us both at once. If Edgar has merited well of you, why are you parted? If ill, why this solicitude, my opinion of him, should be unshaken? Her head now dropped upon Mrs. Tyrold's shoulder, as she faintly answered, He deserves your good opinion, my dearest mother, for he adores you. 
I cannot be unjust to him, though he has made me, I own, not very happy. Designedly, my Camilla? Oh, no, my dearest mother, he would not do that to an enemy. Speak out, then, and speak clearer, my dearest Camilla. If you think of him so well, and are so sure of his good intentions, what, in two words, what is it that has parted you? Accident, my dearest mother, deluding appearances and false internal reasoning on my part, and on his continual misconstruction. Oh, my dearest mother, how I have missed your guiding care! I had ever the semblance, by some cruel circumstance, some inexplicable fatality of incident, to neglect his counsel, oppose his judgment, deceive his expectations, and trifle with his regard. Yet, with a heart faithful, grateful, devoted, oh, my dearest mother, with an esteem that defies all comparison, a respect closely meliorating even to veneration, never was my heart, my dearest mother, so truly impressed with the worth of another, with the nobleness. A buzzing noise from the adjoining parlour, sounding something between a struggle and a dispute, suddenly stopped her, and as she raised her head from the bosom of her mother, in which she had seemed seeking shelter from the very confidence she was pouring forth, she saw the door opened, and the object of whom she was speaking appear at it. Fluttered, colouring, trembling, yet with eyes refulgent with joy, and every feature speaking ecstasy. Almost fainting with shame and surprise, she gave herself up as disgraced, if not dishonoured evermore, for a short but bitter half-moment. It was not longer. Edgar, rushing forward and seizing the hands of Mrs. Tyrold, even while they were encircling her drooping, shrinking, half-expiring Camilla, pressed them with ardent respect to his lips, rapidly exclaiming, My more than mother, my dear, kind, excellent, inestimable friend, forgive this blessed intrusion, plead for me where I dare not now speak, and raise your indeed maternal eyes upon the happiest, the most devoted of your family. What is it overpowers me thus this morning? cried Mrs. Tyrold, leaning her head upon her clinging Camilla, while large drops fell from her eyes. Misfortune, I see, is not the greatest test of our philosophy. Joy, twice to-day, has completely demolished mine. What goodness is this? What encouragement to hope some indulgent intercession here, where the sense that now breaks in upon me of ungenerous, ever to be lamented, and, I had nearly said execrated doubt, fills me with shame and regret, and makes me, even at this soft, reviving, heart-restoring moment, feel undeserving my own hopes." "'Shall I? May I leave him to make his peace?' whispered Mrs. Tyrol to her daughter, whose head sought concealment even to annihilation, but whose arms, with what force they possessed, detained her, uttering faintly but rapidly, "'Oh, no, no, no!' "'My more than mother,' again cried Edgar, "'I will wait till that felicity may be accorded me, and put myself wholly under your kind and powerful influence. One thing alone, I must say.' I have too much to answer for, to take any share of the misdemeanors of another. I have not been a treacherous listener, though a willful obtruder. See, Mrs. Tyrold, who placed me in that room? Who is the accomplice of my happiness? With a smile that seemed to beam but the more brightly for her glistening eyes, Mrs. Tyrold looked to the door, and saw there leaning against it the form she most revered, surveying them all with an expression of satisfaction so perfect contentment so benign, and pleasure, mingled with so much thankfulness, that her tears now flowed fast from unrestrained delight, and Mr. Tyrold, approaching to press at once the two objects of his most exquisite tenderness to his breast, said, This surprise was not planned, but circumstances made it more than irresistible. It was not, however, quite fair to my Camilla, 
and if she is angry, we will be self-exiled till she can pardon us. This is such a dream, cried Camilla, as now, first, from the voice of her father, she believed it reality. So incredible, so unintelligible, I find it entirely impossible, impossible to comprehend anything I see or hear. Let the past, not the present, cried Edgar, be regarded as the dream, and generously drive it from your mind as a fever of the brain, with which reason had no share, and for which memory must find no place. If I could understand in the least, said Camilla, what this all means, what— Mr. Tyrold now insisted that Edgar should retreat, while he made some explanation, and then related to his trembling, doubting, wondering daughter the following circumstances. In returning from Belfont, he had stopped at the halfway house, where he had received from Mrs. Marle a letter that, had it reached him as it was intended at Etherington, would have quickened the general meeting, yet nearly have broken his heart. It was that which, for want of a messenger, had never been sent, and which Peggy, in cleaning the bedroom, had found under a table where it had fallen, she supposes, when the candle was put upon it for reading prayers. "'There was another letter, too,' interrupted Camilla, with quick blushing recollection. "'But my illness, and all that has followed, made me forget them both till this very moment. Did she say anything of any other?' "'Yes, the other had been delivered according to its address. Good heaven!' Be not frightened, my Camilla. All has been beautifully directed for the best. My accomplice had received his early in the morning. He was at the house by some fortunate hazard when it was found, and, being well known there, Mrs. Marle gave it to him immediately. How terrible! It was meant only in case I had seen no one any more. The intent and the event have been, happily, my child, at war. He came instantly hither and inquired of me. I was not returned. He asked my route, and rode to follow or meet me. About an hour ago we encountered upon the road. He gave his horse to his groom and came into the chaise with me. Camilla now could with difficulty listen, but her father hastened to acquaint her that Edgar, with the most generous apologies, the most liberal self-blame, had re-demanded his consent for a union, from which every doubt was wholly and even miraculously removed by learning thus the true feelings of her heart, as depicted at the awful crisis of expected dissolution. The returning smiles which forced their way now through the tears and blushes of Camilla showed how vainly she strove to mingle the regret of shame with the felicity of fond security, produced by this eventful accident. But when she further heard that Edgar in Flanders had met with Lionel, who, in frankly recounting his difficulties and adventures, had named some circumstances which had so shaken every opinion that had urged him to quit England as to induce him instantly from the conference to seek a passage for his return. She felt all but happiness retire from her heart, vanish even from her ideas. "'You are not angry, then?' said Mr. Tyrold, as smilingly he read her delighted sensations, "'that I waited not to consult you, that I gave back at once my consent.' that I folded him again in my arms, again called him my son. She could but seek the same pressure, and he continued, I would not bring him in with me. I was not aware my dear girl was so rapidly recovered, and I had a task to fulfill to my poor Eugenia that was still my first claim. But I promised within an hour your mother, at least, should welcome him. He would walk, he said, for that period. When I met her, I hinted at what was passing, and she followed me to our Eugenia, I then briefly communicated my adventure, and your mother, my Camilla, lost herself in hearing it. Will you not, like me, withdraw from her all reverence? Her eyes gushed with tears. She wept as you weep at this moment. 
She was sure Edgar Mandelbert could alone preserve you from danger, yet make you happy. Was she wrong, my dear child? Shall we attack now her judgment as well as her fortitude? Only at her feet could Camilla show her gratitude to actions she had recourse, for words were inadequate, and the tenderest caresses now spoke best for them all. Respect for the situation of Eugenia, who had desired for this week to live wholly upstairs and alone, determined Mr. and Mrs. Tyrell to keep back for some time the knowledge of this event from the family. Camilla was most happy to pay such an attention to her sister, but when Mr. Tyrell was leaving her to consult upon it with Edgar, the ingenuousness of her nature urged her irresistibly to say, "'Since all this has passed, my dearest father, my dearest mother, does it not seem as if I should now myself?' She stopped, but she was understood. They both smiled, and Mr. Tyrell immediately bringing in Edgar said, I find my pardon, my dear fellow culprit, is already accorded. If you have doubts of your own, try your eloquence for yourself. He left the room, and Mrs. Tyrold was gently rising to quietly follow. But Camilla, with a look of entreaty of which she knew the sincerity, and would not resist the earnestness, detained her. Ah, yes, stay, dearest madam, cried Edgar, again respectfully taking her hand, and through your unalterable goodness, let me hope to procure pardon for a distrust which I here for ever renounce, but which had its origin in my never daring to hope what at this moment I have the felicity to believe. Yet now, even now, without your kind mediation, this dear convalescent may plan some probationary trial at which my whole mind, after this long suffering, revolts. Will you be my caution, my dearest Mrs. Tyrold? Will you venture, and will you deign to promise— that if a full and generous forgiveness may be pronounced. Forgiveness, in a soft voice, interrupted Camilla. Have I anything to forgive? I thought all apology, all explanation rested on my part, and that my imprudencies, my rashness, my so often erring judgment, and so apparently almost even culpable conduct. Oh, my Camilla, my now own Camilla, cried Edgar, venturing to change the hand of the mother for that of the daughter. What, too, two touching words and concessions are these? Suffer me, then, to hope a kind of amnesty may take place of retrospection, a clear, liberal, open forgiveness, anticipate explanation and inquiry. Are you sure, said Camilla, smiling, this is your interest and not mine? Does he not make a mistake, my dearest mother, and turn my advocate instead of his own? And can I fairly take advantage of such an error? The sunshine of her returning smiles went warm to her mother's heart, and gave a glow to the cheeks of Edgar, and a brightness to his eyes that irradiated his whole countenance. "'Your penetrating judgment,' said he to Mrs. Tyrold, "'will take in at once more than any professions, any protestations can urge for me. You see the peace, the pardon, which those eyes do not seek to withhold. Will you then venture, my more than maternal friend, my mother, in every meaning which affection and reverence can give to that revered appellation? Will you venture at once?' now, upon this dear and ever after hallowed moment, to seal the kind consent of my truly parental guardian, and to give me an example of that trust and confidence which my whole future life shall look upon as its lesson? Yes, answered Mrs. Tyrold, instantly joining their hands, and with every security that the happiness of all our lives, my child's, my husband's, yours, my valued Edgar's, and my own will all owe their felicity to the blessing with which I now lay my hands upon my two precious children. Tears were the only language that could express the fullness of joy which succeeded to so much sorrow. And when Mr. Tyrold returned, 
and had united his tenderest benediction with that of his beloved wife, Edgar was permitted to remain alone with Camilla, and the close of his long doubts, and her own long perplexities, was a reciprocal confidence that left nothing untold, not an action unrelated, not even a thought unacknowledged. Edgar confessed that he no sooner had quitted her than he suspected the justice of his decision, the turn which of late he had taken doubtfully to watch her every action, and suspiciously to judge her every motive, though it had impelled him in her presence, ceased to operate in her absence. He was too noble to betray the well-meant, though not well-applied, warnings of Dr. Marchmont, yet he acknowledged that when left to cool reflection, a thousand palliations arose for every step he could not positively vindicate, and when afterwards, from the frank communication of Lionel, he learnt what belonged to the mysterious offer of Sir Sedley Clarendal, that she would superintend the disposal of his fortune, and the deep obligation in which she had been innocently involved, his heart smote him for having judged ere he had investigated that transaction, and, in a perturbation unspeakable of quick repentance and tenderness, he set out for England. But when, at the halfway house, he stopped as usual to rest his horses in his way to Beech Park, what were his emotions at the sight of the locket, which the landlady told him had been pledged by a lady in distress. He besought her pardon for the manner in which he had made way to her, but the almost frantic anxiety which seized him to know if or not it was, and to save her, if so from the intended intrusion of the landlord, made him irresistibly prefer it to the plainer mode which he should have adopted it with any one else, of sending in his name and some message. His shock at her view in such a state he would not now revive, but the impropriety of bidding the landlady quit the chamber, and the impossibility of entering into an explanation in her hearing, alone repressed, at that agitated moment, the avowal of every sensation with which his heart was labouring. But when, he added, shall I cease to rejoice that I had listened to the good landlady's history of a sick guest, while all conjecture was so remote from whom it might be? When I am tempted to turn aside from a tale of distress, I will recollect what I owe to having given." lost in wonder at what could have brought her to such a situation, and disturbed how to present himself at the rectory, till fixed in his plans, he had ridden to the halfway house that morning, to inquire concerning the corpse that Mrs. Marl had mentioned, and there, while he was speaking with her, the little maid brought down two letters, one of them directed to himself. "'What a rapid transition,' cried he, "'was then mine, from regrets that robbed life of all charms,' to prospects which paint it in its most vivid colours of happiness, from wavering the most deplorable, to resolutions of expiating by a whole life of devoted fondness the barbarous waywardness that could deprive me, for one wilful moment, of the exquisite felicity of my lot. But still, said Camilla, I do not quite understand how you came in that room this morning, and how you authorised yourself to overhear my confessions to my mother. Recollect my acknowledged accomplice before you hazard any blame." When I came hither, somewhat I confess, within my given hour, Mr. Tyrold received me himself at the door. He told me I was too soon, and took me into the front parlour. The partition is thin. I heard my name spoken by Mrs. Tyrold, and the gentle voice of my Camilla, in accents yet more gentle than even that voice ever spoke before, answering some question. I was not myself, at first, aware of its tenor, but when unavoidably I gathered it, when I heard words so beautifully harmonizing with what I had lately perused, I would instantly have ventured into the room. But Mr. Tyrold feared surprising you. 
You went on. My fascinated soul divested me of obedience, of caution, of all but joy and gratitude, and he could no longer restrain me. And now with which of her offenders will my Camilla quarrel? With neither, I believe, just at present. The conspiracy is so complex, and even my mother so nearly a party concerned, that I dare not risk the unequal contest. I must only in future, she added, smiling, speak ill of you, and then you will find less pleasure in the thinness of a partition. Faithfully she returned his communication by the fullest, most candid and unsparing account of every transaction of her short life, from the still shorter period of its being put into voluntary motion. With nearly breathless interest, he listened to the detail of her transactions with Sir Sedley Clarendell, with pity to her debts, and with horror to her difficulties. But when, through the whole ingenuous narration, he found himself the constant object of every view, the ultimate motive to every action, even where least it appeared, his happiness and his gratitude made Camilla soon forget that sorrow had ever been known to her. They then spoke of her two favorites, Mrs. Arlberry and Mrs. Burlington, and though she was animated in her praise of the good qualities of the first, and the sweet attraction of the last, she confessed the danger, for one so new in the world, of choosing friends distinct from those of her family, and voluntarily promised, during her present season of inexperience, to repose the future choice of her connections, where she could never be happy without their approvance. The two hundred pounds to Sir Sedley Clarendell he determined, on the very day that Camilla should be his, to return to the baronet, under the privilege, and in the name of paying it for a brother. In conference thus softly balsamic to every past wound, and thus deliciously opening to that summit of earthly felicity, confidence unlimited entwined around affection unbounded, hours might have passed, unnumbered and unawares, had not prudence forced a separation for the repose of Camilla. End of Book 10, Chapter 13, Recording by Michelle Crandall, Fremont, California, November 2010